Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first part of a debate between Andrew Sandlin and Charles Doughty on the topic of Calvinism. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen to the full debate, available now at Canon Plus. Our guest, Andrew Sandlin, is editor-in-chief of the Chalcedon Report and the Journal of Christian Reconstruction. He is executive director of Chalcedon Foundation, the founder of the American Reconstructionist Societies, and co-founder of the Association of Free Reformed Churches. An interdisciplinary scholar, he holds academic degrees or concentrations in English, history, and political science. His essays appear in numerous scholarly and popular publications. He has spoken internationally at conferences and in other forums. He is president of the National Reform Association and a member of the Board of International Church Relief Fund, an international missionary agency. He is married and has five children. Charles Doughty, uh, our Calvinist uh, opponent, uh, is a senior minister, senior evangelist of the Church of Christ here at Mountain View. He is also the president of the Bible College here at Mountain View of Christian Kingdom College. He graduated from Kentucky Christian College in Grayson, Kentucky, and has postgraduate work at Cincinnati Bible Seminary and Kent State University. And I might add uh, that uh, Andrew Salen also uh, attended Kent State University, too, in uh, Kent, Ohio. So uh, hopefully we won't have any massacres uh, as they had there. Uh, but uh, Evangelist Dowdy, uh, of course, doing his work with Christian Kingdom College, uh, he will uh, uh, be the Calvinist opponent. And so without further ado, we'll start the program with Andrew Salen. Thanks so much. Well, it's very good to see all of you this evening. Pleasure to be here, to meet you folks from Church of Christ, Mountain View, and Christ Kingdom College. How many of you are college students here? Could I see your hand? That's great. Great to see you. hope you listen carefully. I may not convince all of you or any of you. But it's uh, good to be here, and it's good for you to listen to what someone who holds a different theological viewpoint has to say. That's very valuable. And I appreciate the, the courage of these men, uh, Chuck and John, inviting me. I've enjoyed being with them, and very grateful for their invitation. Good to see all of you Calcedon friends and uh, supporters, and hope I can get to talk to some or all of you. I believe I saw Bill Einwechter come in. There he is, somewhere. A reformed writer and scholar in his own right. So, Bill, I'm putting you on notice. If I get sick or fall down or have a heart attack, you're going to have to come right up immediately and, and take my place. Bill's the editor of The Christian Statesman, a fine, dedicated Christian man, and a, and a Calvinist and my friend. We're here to debate Reformed theology. I'd better get to that. I see that the clock is ticking there. We're here to debate Reformed theology, otherwise known as Calvinism, uh, I stand with uh, what I believe to be the biblical teaching on this matter, the Old Testament and its infallible authority, the New Testament, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus Christ, uh, John the Baptist, St. Paul, St. John, Augustine, and the Patristic Church especially, a number of the uh, earlier fathers, 
some in the medieval era. Specifically, however, though, the, the Protestant reformers, John Calvin and uh, John Knox, Farrell, Beza, to a lesser extent, Luther, the Westminster Divines, various of the Continental Reformers, Heidelberg Catechism and so forth, the Puritans, the Scottish Covenanters, the Southern Presbyterians, the old, the old, not the new, Princeton tradition, the Hodges, Alexander and so forth, the Southern Presbyterians, Dabney Thornwell, Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, Cornelius Van Til, up today to men like uh, R.J. Rastuni, my mentor in various others. We believe that these men, in essence, have taught biblical doctrine. The important thing is not these men and that they taught it. The important thing is we believe this is what the Bible itself teaches. Chuck and I agree on the authority of Scripture, its inspiration, its infallibility, at least the formal authority of the Word of God. We both agree on that, that the Bible is absolute. We just disagree on what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're here tonight to address. Well, I better get right to the first topic. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get through all of them. I'll certainly do my best, and I'm not trying to dodge the issue if I don't, and maybe we can get into all of it in the rebuttal. But I want us to begin tonight by turning to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I believe the first issue that we're discussing this evening is the New Covenant as an Old Testament reality. Is the New Covenant faith present in the Old Testament? You better believe it is. Let's turn to Jeremiah 31 and read. I have about 80 to 100 scripture texts that I'd like for us to turn to tonight. There's going to be no way that we'll have time to do it. I will, however, cite some references. So if you're writing them down, you may want to, may want to do that or get a copy of the tape and look them up. I'll have to go quickly sometimes. Jeremiah 31 prophesies of a new covenant, although other texts in the Old Testament do the same thing. We could point to a number, but this is the one that's cited in Hebrews, and it's quite clear. Notice in verses 31 to 33, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, and he speaks of the provisions of this new covenant, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, most of the benefits of the New Covenant were a reality in the Old Testament era. Let me give you some examples of that, and you may want to write them down. First of all, God had already written the law of God, His law, on the hearts of the Old Testament saints. This is predicted, notice, in verse 33. But it was already a reality in the Old Testament. Oh, you say, already a reality in the Old Testament? I thought it was something only in the New Testament. Oh, no, not at all. Turn to Psalm 37, for example. And we won't be able to turn to many scriptures, but let's turn there to begin. Most of the provisions of the New Covenant were existent in the Old Testament era. It's 
speaking of the righteous, Psalm 37, verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. By the way, good defense of postmillennialism. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. But especially notice verse 31. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Quite clear, isn't it, that the law of God is placed in the heart of people in the Old Testament era. The same thing is said in chapter, in essence, in chapter 40. Well, let's, we'll take time to turn over there quickly. Chapter 40, Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, of course, cited in the New Testament in Hebrews. And I don't have time to go into all the context here. I wish we did. Then said I, verse 7, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. It's a reality in the Old Testament era, the law of God within the heart. New covenant provision, Old Testament era. New covenant Christianity in the Old Testament, you'd better believe it. Point number two, God had already been a God to his people and had made them his people. I don't, I'm not going to give you the text or read it. Genesis 17, 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, say the, say the same thing. God had already been a God to his people and specially chosen them. Not only that, God had already in the Old Testament implied that the least to the greatest would belong to him. Let's turn in this one, Isaiah chapter 54. And there are several texts we could look at, but Isaiah 54. The promise that all of the covenant people would be a part of the people of God and none would teach his neighbor. Implied quite clearly in texts like Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 3, 16 to 18. Notice verses 11 through 13 of Isaiah 54. Well, start in verse 12. And I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. Predicted right there in the Old Testament. Right there in the Old Testament as a reality. Turn to Psalm 103 and I could say much, much more about that. I'm just trying to establish a point here and within the allotted time that we have. Psalm 103. What was another provision of the New Covenant? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Only after Jesus Christ had come? Nonsense. We believe in the authority of the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. What does the Old Testament say? Verse 8 of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. What a glorious promise in the Old Testament era. New covenant religion in the Old Testament. Thank God for those great Old Testament saints who are examples to us. Many of whom were much better Christians than we are. 
This is what the book of Hebrews also teaches us. So then, what does it mean, the new covenant? New like brand new, like a brand new bicycle? No, it means renewed, like, for example, the Bible uses the term the new moon. Same Hebrew word. God creates a new moon every time the cycle comes around. Throw this one out and a brand new one. No, it means a new phase. And specifically, God's making a covenant with a new people. The multinational church of Jesus Christ rather than ethnic Israel. That's the sense in which the new covenant, for the most part, is new. Boy, I'd like to go to Galatians 4, 21 to 29, and uh, only halfway through this, and perhaps there'll be time to do that. You may want to write that text down, Galatians 4, 21 to 29, which proves that the distinction between the Old and New Covenants begins in the Old Testament era, where Isaac is depicted as a New Covenant believer in the Old Testament and is regenerate. Quite clear, and there's much, much more there, but for the sake of time... We'll move on. I'll conclude this section by saying that the entire Bible, the entire Bible is New Covenant Revelation. Now, we need to understand it was Melito, Bishop of Sardis, who sometime before A.D. 180 first designated the Hebrew canon as the Old Testament, just as the heretical Alexandrian father Origen first labeled the Greek canon the New Testament. Jesus doesn't call it that. John the Baptist doesn't call it that. Moses doesn't use those terms. St. Paul doesn't use them. When he uses the term, he does not referring to what we would say is the Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures. He's referring to something else. Each of these designations, Old and New Testament, reflects a particular theological motivation not expressed or even implied in the Scriptures themselves. They're okay if they're used properly. Unfortunately, they're often not used properly. You thought, well, the Old Testament is just old and decrepit. You can't really read there and there's nothing good and it's old. But the New Testament is exciting and happy. Nonsense. The people in the Bible would never have thought that way. No one actually living in the period covered by the New Testament would have thought of himself as a New Testament Christian. Ever think about that? Well, we need New Testament Christianity, some people say. I want to be a New Testament Christian. Or establish a New Testament church. Yet nobody actually living in the New Testament thought that way. They were just fulfilling what the law and the prophets had said. And there are so many scriptures. Let me give you some that will prove that. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. What Jesus Christ himself said. The disciples on the Emmaus Road. When he opened up the Hebrew scriptures to them. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? He opened up the Hebrew scriptures and expounded all that the Hebrew scriptures said about him. Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has authoritative revelation. And Acts 13, 26 to 27. And Acts 17, 1 through... Well, you know what, let's just take time. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Don't you wish we had three or four days to do this? Maybe we can do it next time. Paul was a good Bible-believing Old Testament, quote, Christian. Of course, the New Testament wasn't written at this time. And there are other texts like this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis rather, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, Apollonia rather, they came to Thessalonica, 
where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three days, three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. What Scriptures? What Scriptures? Revelation, right? Jude, right? Wrong. Play again. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs... Wait a minute, wait wait a minute, Paul. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again... Paul, do you understand the Old Testament doesn't say anything about that, does it? Well, of course it does. Of course it does. Paul is using the Old Testament as his authority in teaching the so-called New Testament gospel. How important and vital this is. The New Testament is simply a continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament teachings. This is why the New Testament writers treat the Old Testament as the doctrine of the church. They didn't have anything else. They had no other scriptures. They had immediate divine revelation, the apostles did, at times. And they had the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament, which they assumed to be the chartered gospel of the church. So let's not get this idea, well, the Old Testament is decrepit and kind of old, and it was only for the Jews and that sort of... What nonsense! Now let's be Bible Christians, not New Testament Christians or Old Testament Christians, but biblical Christians means that all of the Bible is authoritative. And unless the New Testament specifically or by implication sets something aside, then the Old Testament is authoritative. Let's have the same attitude that Jesus Christ Himself had toward the Old Testament. Which is what? Let's do away with it, right? We don't need the Old Testament because Jesus is here. Didn't you read Jesus saying that? No, you didn't read Jesus saying that in Matthew chapter 5. Bill Ironwecker has written a little book about it. What's the title? The Law of God and... Ethics and God's Law. You had to think too long there, by the way. You need to know the title of your books, buddy. It's clear from Matthew chapter 5, and I could spend a long time on this. The Old Testament is authoritative, just as authoritative as the New Testament. It is all the law of God. The Hebrew Scripture, all the authority of the Word of God. It's all absolutely authoritative. The Old Testament is the charter of the church, of course, in the New Testament. The gospel, of course, was preached in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Which Scriptures, Paul? You get one guess. Can somebody tell me? The Old Testament. Why? Well, the New Testament wasn't written at the time. Of course, by implication, it also includes the entire Word of God. Well, the New Testament wasn't, wasn't written. Specifically, he was referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, profitable for doctrine. Every your preachers get up and announce the text of the Old Testament and apologize. Now, I know this is from the Old Testament, and I know the Old Testament is authoritative, but maybe there's something back there that we can learn. Nonsense. You ever see Paul talking that way or Jesus talking that way? It's the inspired, the infallible Word of God before we tremble, before which we should tremble. The entire Bible is New Covenant revelation. And finally, who today can say that his intensity of devotion and knowledge of God approaches that of Abraham and of Moses and of David, those Old Testament Christians who are sort of inferior? Can you say with David in Psalm 119 what he says about his love for the law of God? Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm better than that. Nonsense. What arrogance. Thank God for those Old Testament Christians who loved God, who loved Jesus Christ, who looked forward to Jesus Christ, 
Abraham saw my day and was glad, Jesus Christ himself said. The Bible, absolutely authoritative. Oh, there's so much more I could say about that. I want to get to the issues of predestination and the Calvinistic soteriology or salvation doctrine. And I'll try to get to, my time is escaping, I'll try to get to predestination within this particular discussion. Let's talk about soteriology or salvation doctrine, and boy, I've got to whiz through this. So write the text down. You want to know in a nutshell what Calvinists believe about salvation? You want to write it down? You can go out and quote Andrew Sandlin on this, those of you that aren't Calvinists. Calvinist experts said this. You can write it down. It's this. Calvinists believe that God saves men. He doesn't help them save themselves. God saves men. He doesn't help them save themselves. You still have this little bargain with God. Well, God, if you do this, I'll do this. No, the Bible teaches salvation by grace, through faith, totally as a work of God. It's called monergistic soteriology. God and man don't cooperate in salvation. That's the great era of Roman Catholicism. The great era of Eastern Orthodoxy. And the great era of Arminianism. Now, let's go quickly to discuss the Calvinist view of soteriology. There is the acrostic tulip, which we'll use, that some of you probably are aware of. And my debate partner certainly is tulip. The acrostic T stands in this acrostic for total depravity, or some would say total inability. What does that mean? It means that man is sinful in every part of his being and therefore lacks spiritual understanding and the capacity to do good. Yeah. Does the Bible teach that? That's just nice little Calvinistic fiction. Well, let's turn to Psalm 51 and begin there. Point out that men from birth are sinful. They inherit this from Adam, their sin. That's what Romans chapter 5 teaches. We inherit the guilt and the penalty of sin from our father Adam as we gain righteousness, imputed righteousness, only by union with Jesus Christ. That is the clear analogy of Romans 5, 12 to 21. But let's look here at, at Psalm 51, David's penitential prayer. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. But even more clearly, Psalm 58, verse 3, says the wicked are estranged from the womb. In other words, the Bible teaches original sin. This is the key tenet of biblical soteriology. Original sin. If we get rid of original sin, we pollute the grace of God. Men are no longer saved by grace. That's the Roman Catholic view. Although acknowledge original sin, but kind of weave and bob this way and that. Eastern Orthodox don't even believe it. So from their birth, we can see that the wicked are estranged. They're estranged from the womb. Their wickedness. Oh, so many texts. Jeremiah 17.9. John chapter 3, verse 19. Let's turn to a prominent one, of course. Romans chapter 3. You're all aware of this one, I would would presume. Romans chapter 3. Citation here of a number of Old Testament texts. Oh, interesting! Citation of Old Testament texts! 
that Paul is using to prove his assertion in Romans chapter 3. I thought the Old Testament was done away with. No, as a matter of fact, it's not. It's not. Paul didn't think so. Now, maybe you think so, but Paul didn't think so. Jesus didn't think so. Maybe our ideas are better than theirs. I don't think so. Romans 3, of course, citation from the Old Testament in verse 10. A number of Old Testament passages, some in Psalms, Psalms and Isaiah are put in here. As it is written... Well, notice the previous verse. Both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Oh, the inherent goodness of man! Doesn't it come out there? I'll tell you, that spark of divinity in man. Born such a good, nice little angel. He grows up to be so good, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. This is the course of sin, because men are inherently, intrinsically sinners. That's the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his posterity. This is a description of how it works its way out. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways, way of peace they have not known, no fear of God before their eyes. But that's the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God. Then verse 19, now we know that whatsoever things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, wait a minute, Paul, no, you can't quote the law, because the law is not authoritative. Uh, sorry. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may become guilty before God. The law indicts sinners. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Somebody help me? Law-breaking. Sin is the transgression of the law. Every time you sin, you break the law. The law is a perfect transcription of God's righteousness. Eternally authoritative. As authoritative as He is. Total depravity. That leads also to inability. Man cannot sort of conjure up a spirituality. Man is unable to trust and love and obey God inherently. There are so many texts, Romans 5, 6, Romans 7, 18 and 19, Romans 8, 7. But I want to look at one that is very powerful is indeed, 2 Timothy 2, 25. Boy, I've really got to move. John, are we down to, is it 20 minutes now? I can't, this is a backwards clock. Okay. Well, we'll do our best. If we don't finish, you're going to have to invite me back. Notice, well, let's start in verse 24. The exhortation to Timothy, the son of the faith, and the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them, in other words, will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. God grants repentance. Say, well, I'm ready to repent now, God, because of my free will. Wrong. Play again. Wrong. God grants repentance. It's a gift of God. Say, well, I don't like that kind of God. Fine, go pray and see if He'll change His mind. 
But notice especially, verse 26, "...and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by Him at His will." At His will. At His whim. At His will, He takes the wicked captive. Oh, somebody says something. I'll never commit that sin. The old, weak-willed fellow taken captive by the devil at His will. Why? Because men are sinners. Satan has the power to take the wicked captive at His will. It's a very frightening thought, as a matter of fact. You see how desperately men need salvation? Don't you see how desperately they need salvation? And that they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone is the power of God to salvation. Not some inherent goodness of man. Not some inherent good faith of man that everybody carries around in their bosom, like Charles Finney taught, the old wicked heretic. Even though he's popular among the evangelicals today. You say, I can't believe you said that. Get the tape and listen to it and you'll hear it again. And second, or 1 Corinthians 2.14 points out that man, because of this, is spiritually blind. Another description of the sinful man is he's dead. Dead, dead in trespasses and in sins. What do dead people need? They need a resurrection. They don't need medicine. They're not sick in need of medicine. They're dead and in need of a resurrection. That's the point. And my friends, that's just what I believe is good biblical doctrine. That's just good old Calvinistic, Augustinian, Pauline soteriology. That's what I believe that the Bible teaches. Total depravity. And then we'll move on, and it looks like I'll try to get through all five of the points. Maybe not. The you refers to unconditional election. What does that mean? It means that God chooses men to salvation not on the basis of any goodness in them or any foreseen merit or foreseen virtue or foreseen faith, but solely on the basis of His sovereign choice. Oh, many people don't like that, but I believe that is exactly what the Bible teaches. A number of texts, Acts 13:48, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, of course, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Revelation 17, 8, Revelation 13, 8, Philippians 1, 29. I'll just, because of the time, look at one. Let's turn to a prominent one in Romans chapter 9. Speaking of God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he would be damned and judged according to God's good pleasure, Romans chapter 9. Notice this amazing statement by the Apostle Paul. Verse 17, and I would like to read the whole thing, but again, we'll just jump right here in the middle. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, God and the Scripture sort of identified there. Very interesting identity, isn't it? When God speaks, the Scripture speaks. God speaks, the Scripture speaks. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, the sovereign God speaking to Pharaoh and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath He, the Sovereign God, mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will He hardeneth. Well, that's not very nice. Well, it may not be, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And notice that St. Paul anticipates the question. And here it comes. 
Thou wilt say then unto me, argumentatively in a debate like we are having, Thou wilt say, Why does he yet find fault? How, Paul, could God find fault if he's the one that hardens? Isn't man a free agent? Isn't he responsible? Why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Who could resist the will of God? Come on, Paul, make some sense. And so Paul goes through a very learned disquisition starting in verse 20, doesn't he? No. Do you know what he says? He says, shut your mouth. He says, nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And he goes on. You can continue to read verse 22 and following. The same thing. In other words, God can do what He wants to do. God is the sovereign God. Man is not a zero. Man is made in the image of God. But God is still sovereign. You say, well, I'll tell you what, I couldn't serve that kind of God. That's very sad. Because this is the God the Bible reveals. The question is, are we going to bow the knee to the sovereign God revealed in the Word of God? Or are we going to invent in our own mind the sort of God we would like to have? That's the question. It's the age-old sin of Genesis chapter 3. Of Eve knowing, deciding for herself what is right. I want to be in the driver's seat. I want to be the one to decide. Well, you know what? You aren't. I'm not. Chuck isn't. John isn't. We're not. God is sovereign. We have a derivative freedom. A real freedom? Absolutely. Not robots. Real freedom. But it's within the confines of God's sovereign work. You say, how do you explain that? I don't. And neither is God. We don't have to. It's the work of God. You say, well, I can't understand that. Yeah, because you're finite. You don't have to understand it all. Just believe what the Word of God says. A number of scriptures we could go into there, and I just just do not do not have the time. I could deal with a number of objections which we can get to in the in the rebuttal. Let's get to L, which is limited atonement or particular redemption. Some people find this terribly abhorrent. But as a matter of fact, it's what the Bible teaches. What does that mean, limited atonement or particular redemption? It means that Christ's death, while sufficient to redeem the entire creation under God's under divine curse, Christ's death was designed to secure the salvation only of the elect, of His chosen people. Particularism. number of texts that we could read here. I think the best one to go to is, well, write these down. Matthew 1.21, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, John 17.12, Acts 20, verse 28, John 18, 9, if you're still writing quickly, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Christ's death for the elect or for His people or for His own. John chapter 10 says He dies, He sheds His blood for His own sheep. Acts 20, 28, the Bible talks about the blood of Christ being shed for the church of God. Romans 8, 32. But one that is especially potent is Hebrews 9, 12. Let's turn there. Christ's 
death actually secures salvation for all for whom he dies. That is a biblical teaching. Christ's death doesn't make people savable. It actually saves people. What a weak atonement is that! But Christ's death just makes people savable. Oh, you could get saved if you wanted to, maybe. Man, it's too weak for that. He's a sinner. Notice, well, let's just start in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, speaking, of course, of the Old Testament sacrifices which pointed to Him and which have been fulfilled in Him, but by His own blood, metonymy, of course, metonym for His death, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained the possibility for you to get saved. Is that what your translation reads? If it is, you've got the wrong one. It says, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That is, for His people. For us as the people of God. Christ's death actually secured the salvation of His people. Oh, there's great comfort and security in that thought. It's not because of my own works or my own righteousness. Because all of my righteousness and yours are as filthy rags. The best we can do is not in the sight of God. It is only what Christ did at Calvary to secure the salvation of us as His elect people. It is on that basis and that basis alone that we can be saved. And again, a number of texts we could go to. There are a number of objections to this text brought up in objection that we may deal with after Chuck gets up, but let's continue on right now. Let's go also to... The next point, T-U-L-I, is irresistible or efficacious grace, which means that God's plan in bringing His elect to salvation can't be frustrated. It cannot be frustrated. All of the elect will be saved. They'll all be brought in. God's not sitting over the parapets of heaven right now, biting metaphorically His nails. Oh no, I don't know if everything's going to go well. I don't know, people are rejecting my word. What am I going to do? Oh, Jesus, what am I going to do? What blasphemy! He's the sovereign, kingly God, who is a God of love indeed. Thank God He's a God of love. But He's also a God of justice. And His will cannot be resisted. A number of texts. Well, let's turn to John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer to the Father says in verse 1, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power or authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Father gives the elect 
as a precious gift into the hands of Jesus Christ and says, Son, these are yours. These are yours. I have given you power and authority over all flesh so that you may give them eternal life. Question, will Jesus fail? Will the Father fail? I certainly hope not. Because you want to go to heaven, don't you? You better believe it. You better hope He can't fail. You better hope that His grace is efficacious. If not, how can you be sure that you will be saved in the final day? Well, because of the promises of the Word of God. Well, that's a very good answer. Based in what? Promises based in the power of God. That's why He can make those promises. Not promises made like a, by perverted political figures like we have, one of them in the White House. The promise of the sovereign God backed up by His efficacious grace and His sovereign will. That's why you and I can be secure. Not because we're good. Well, maybe I can make it if I hang on. No, you won't. You can't hang on. Maybe I can be good enough. You can't. You can't. Sorry. Our future rests with the sovereign grace of God backed up by His omnipotent power. Thank God for that. And then, and it looks like we're coming down right to the end, and I'm just not going to be able to get to the issue of baptism right now, though we certainly can do that later if you'd like. Um, P, in the acrostic T-U-L-I-P, in the biblical and Calvinistic soteriological scheme, is the perseverance of the saints. The Calvinistic view is often misunderstood. Let me state it quickly. (coughs) God will preserve his elect from reprobation and work in them in such a way that they persist in righteousness, though not in sinless perfection. We certainly do not believe that. We need to quickly distinguish three views. First is often called eternal security. Some people say, once saved, always saved. You come down the old sawdust trail here and gave my heart to Jesus. And now I can go out and commit adultery and never come to church. But man, I got my ticket to heaven. That's what you Calvinists teach. No, we don't. No, we don't. Then, of course, there are the Arminians who hold that the truly saved can forfeit or, or lose their salvation. Many Arminians believe that. Not all of them, but many of them do. And then there is the Calvinistic view. Those truly saved persevere in righteousness. And those who do not only reveal that they were never elect in the first place. The perseverance of the saints, in other words, not the perseverance of the sinner. Let's turn to John chapter 10. You should be there close. You're still in John 17. A number of texts here. Isaiah 54, 9, 9 and 10. Jeremiah 32, 40. Matthew 24, 24. John 6, 39 and 40. Romans 8, oh, 27 to 39. What a glorious passage that is about the perseverance of the saints. 
Romans 11, 28 and 29, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Philippians 1, 6, 1 Peter 1, 5, Jude 24 and 25. But let's just look at one. If I can get there myself. John chapter 10. Verses 27 to 29. All of those who are truly saved cannot forfeit their salvation. You'd better believe it. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That those who are truly saved are obedient to the law of God. They are good Christians. They're not sinlessly perfect, but they're good Christians. Say, so, well, I know so and so that claims to be saved, working on his fourth marriage multiple immoralities, never comes to church. But I know one time, years ago, he claimed to trust Jesus. Well, I'm sorry. First John says, wrong. You say, oh, he lost his salvation. Nope, never had it. Never had it. My sheep, verse 27, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In the hand of the Sovereign Father and Jesus Christ. Oh, and there are all sorts of texts that indicate salvation is contingent on obedience and faithfulness. We don't deny that. And I'll get to just one of those because time is slipping away. Let's turn to um, oh, Colossians 1. Let's just do that one. Colossians chapter 1, 21 to 23. A number of texts like this that Arminians use. Say, well, people can be truly saved and lose their salvation. Glorious description of those who were previously alienated and enemies from God. Verse 21. Enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled. You say, do you have to persevere in the faith to be saved? Absolutely. So you're saved by works? Nope. But all those who are truly saved will indeed persevere in the faith. Salvation totally by the grace of God. But all who are truly saved will indeed persevere in good works. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. All of those that have true saving faith are obedient to the Lord. Well, I could go on to something else, but I see I've got about a minute or two left, and I'm going to stop right there. Thank you very much for your attention. Andrew, uh, when you began speaking, I forgot that I had not uh, enumerated the uh, topic for debate and the subpoint uh, which you followed. And so let me uh, uh, here in the interlude uh, go ahead and, and read that. The topic for the debate uh, does have a formal proposition. How scriptural is Calvinism? Is new covenant faith found in both the Old and New Testaments? Uh, number two, is man predestined? Number three, are the tulip doctrines supported by scripture? 
and is infant baptism justified by Scripture? I do want to add, uh, before the second opening presentation, that uh, there's a great deal of literature that's been prepared outside at the tables, and uh, during the break uh, you'll have an opportunity to go out there. That is all offered to you complimentary, free of charge. Uh, we are going to take an offering, and uh, uh, there's a great deal of research that has gone into the, to tonight's debate, and so be prepared to uh, make out an offering. Make out your check to the Church of Christ at Mountain View, and that will be uh, used to... Uh, uh, take care of uh, uh, Andrew's honorarium and uh, the debate for tonight. There was a great expense that uh, we had to go to provide this for you tonight. Okay, and now our second opening presentation. Uh, Mr. Dowdy. Thank you, Andrew, for giving us your tulip patch. Uh, there was only one flower in the tulip uh, patch, of course. And uh, so what I like to do is kind of tiptoe through the tulip. Uh, first of all, total depravity, and I do want to dismiss without uh, just a few verses of Scripture here uh, that the Old Testament uh, uh, had. Uh, you're the first person I ever heard call yourself an Old Testament Christian. We used to call that an anomaly, but I heard it tonight. Uh, in First uh, Peter, it talks about the uh, people of the Old Testament uh, being moved with the Holy Spirit as they spoke. And we know that Jesus said in John 16 that the, the Holy Spirit had not yet come. He said, after I leave, it's essential for me to leave, uh, and that I go and prepare a place for you. But he said that, that I cannot really, uh, the Holy Spirit cannot come unless I go. In John 14:26, 15:26. so the Holy Spirit had not come. Now, this new covenant was uh, not just to give the Holy Spirit to a few people. Yes, the law was in the heart of David and in Isaiah. Uh, the Holy Spirit moved upon these men. Uh, there's no question there uh, that they were authorized by the Holy Spirit to write, as it says in First Peter, uh, that uh, they, uh, the salvation in verse 10, they, these prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Uh, and they made careful search and inquiry of the grace that would come on you in the New Testament. Uh, they didn't have it. Uh, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Uh, he was in them individually. So, yes, the law was in, but only individuals. Uh, so uh, we can't blanket the Holy Spirit on the whole Old Testament people because he had not come yet. And just because uh, the law was written in the heart of David doesn't mean it was written in the whole Old Testament economy. Because it says here in verse 11, he predicted the suffering of Christ to come. It was revealed to them that they were not, uh, that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you, so the announcement of the gospel is in the New Testament, not the Old. And uh, they preached the gospel to you in prophecy, knowing that something better was yet to come. Even angels desired to look in upon the things you're hearing tonight and the things that we're preaching tonight, because these angels didn't even know. So uh, that dismisses that without even a, a, a word uh, further. I could mention Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, God in sundry times and divers manners spake to the prophets in times past, now speaks to us through the Son. So he did work in the Spirit through those men. Uh, as far as total depravity is concerned, total, absolute, uh, complete depravity. Yes, depravity is in the Bible. We're, we're wicked people. But total depravity that we cannot respond to God, uh, that even a baby is born, and the, uh, and the reform uh, taught uh, many, many times. I'm sure this brother here may not mention it. Maybe he does. That babies are damned to hell the day they're born because of Adam's sin. Uh, 
And he didn't mention uh, Romans, of course. That's an old passage. They say that, uh, uh, that sin passed upon all men, but in Romans 5.12 it says death passed upon all men. I didn't inherit Adam's sin. I inherited his death. And I will die because of Adam's sin. But uh, uh, sin did not pass upon all men, uh, making them total, totally depraved. Uh, and so uh, the T here that I want to tiptoe through, Psalms 51.5, one of their famous, uh, favorite texts, uh, doesn't teach uh, total depravity at all. And sin did my mother conceive me. And it may be interesting for you to know the search through the Old Testament that the sin that the mother committed here, the mother's sin, in heat did my mother uh, conceive me. Uh, the word refers to animal heat. It has nothing to do with natural conception. In fact, it's the only time that conception is ever used as animal heat. And uh, some Jewish commentators say that David was illegitimately born. And uh, that, uh, that's why he mentions, and sin did my mother conceive me. So uh, that word there is not hava, uh, the uh, ordinary word for conception. It's only found of animal heat. Uh, and uh, he said, in animal heat did my mother conceive me. He's really lamenting the fact that, that life is very gloomy in his case. And David, of course, had his share of gloomy moments. Uh, and as far as uh, uh, the, the tea part of the tulip, as I tiptoe through it tonight, he said, suffer little children to come to me. Uh, forbid them not to come to me, for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19:14. If children were totally depraved, born that way, uh, he'd say, "Upsets our ornery, rotten, sinful hearts of the kingdom of heaven." And I can't picture a little baby over there in the nursery being born completely, totally depraved, uh, rotten, and uh, completely given over to sin, and that God has to work a work of salvation on him in order for him to be saved. Ezekiel 18:20 says to the contrary that the soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father bear the iniquity of the son. Therefore, sin cannot be inherited. Consequences, yes, of sin can be. Uh, through uh, venereal disease, you could be born blind, but uh, sin itself. Uh, in Matthew 16, 17, it said, The Son of Man shall come in the glory with his fathers and his, uh, and his angels. And then shall he render every man according to his deed. If he's going to render to us according to our deed, uh, and uh, he predestined us to sin... Uh, and that uh, sin, of course, uh, is a predestined matter. It's not a deliberate choice. It's under His providential care. Then why would He render to us according to our deeds? That's the question. Uh, that's not fair. And not only uh, would we be, be born totally depraved, uh, but we would also uh, have to inherit uh, from Adam, and it would be His fault that we sin, uh, if, if you carry this to its logical conclusion, that in, re, in reality we're not only bearing the, the, uh, the brunt of our own sin, but uh, the brunt of another man's sin, which is Adam. Uh, and uh, it also says, Peter says in uh, his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 17, uh, if you call on him as father, uh, who without respect to persons judges according to, uh, every man according to his, uh, to his work. So uh, we just uh, want to kind of tiptoe through that tulip there and go on to the you. Uh, notice here the next petal in the Calvinistic tulip is the uh, unconditional election. Uh, and uh, they, they mention here that, uh, uh, th that God has elected some people to heaven and, and some to hell. Of course, the word election comes from the Greek word selection. And uh, uh, that uh, it looks as though God has predestined before you were born that you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell, according to that. Uh, but in the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, he that believeth is baptized shall be saved, and the unbeliever shall be damned. Uh, so evidently, you are selected by God uh, when you uh, get in on the predestined plan of God, which is uh, the, the preaching of the Word of God 
certainly was planned by God before the foundation of the world. Uh, we also have the, uh, uh, the L's. We tiptoe through that one. Uh, John 10, 11, they say, through 15, uh, they teach that, that uh, uh, Jesus said uh, that uh, he, he died only for uh, the limited uh, 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 atone, that is, uh, only for those selected people. We, I use the word select, they use the word elect, but selection is, uh, is the meaning of the word. Uh, he said, I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 15, he said, as the Father knows me, I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Someone read into this that Jesus is saying that he died for the sheep only and not for anyone else. One has to strain pretty uh, hard to come up with an interpretation like that in view of the fact that the writer of the book of Hebrews said he tasted of death for every man. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full debate available now on Canon Plus.